When will these humans figure out what the demons have known all along? When will these humans comprehend who this man Jesus is? The demons have comprehended this all along. When will the humans see this? He, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So this is a story of rejection. Rejection is at the center of the story, and this is a story about rejection. In many ways, this is the deepest and the most hurtful rejection that Jesus has received so far. Jesus has received much rejection by way of the Pharisees, by way of the religious leaders, those who oppose him openly. But those were all people that were, in a sense, separated from him, insulated from him. This is rejection in Jesus' hometown. This is rejection at its core. This is rejection on the part of those who should have celebrated Jesus the most fervently, who should have embraced him the most vigorously, and yet these are the ones who who will reject him the most resolutely. So Mark places the story here for a reason, as he's placed all of his stories where they are for a reason, for a thematic reason. And part of the reason the story is here is to prepare us for what's coming up, to prepare both the reader for what's coming up to follow, but in addition to this, to also prepare the disciples for the story that is to follow, for the episode in their life that is to follow. Because immediately after this story is when the 12 disciples, the apostles, are sent out on that first initial mission, in which we'll see next week they will experience much rejection as well. So to prepare them for the rejection that they will receive we see this story of Jesus's rejection and not just any rejection, but a deep and personal rejection. Then that also prepares the reader not only for the story of the apostles being sent out in the next story, but also the following story of John the baptizer and his ultimate rejection as he's arrested and executed. That prepares us for that story. And then ultimately we're being prepared for the ultimate rejection, which comes in chapter 14 as Jesus will be rejected by his own He will be rejected by Pilate. He will be rejected by the Sanhedrin. He will be rejected by his own people and he will be be put on a cross. So all of this is preparing us for that ultimate rejection because rejection really is the context in which the entire Christian life takes place, which the entire kingdom of God exists in this age. It exists within the context of rejection and much of it. There's a sense in which the reader should feel a common bond with Jesus through this story. We, f- we should feel a bond with Jesus in all stories. But in this story, we should feel a common bond with Jesus, with the, the, the disciples. We should feel 
in some way, something like the disciples must have felt on those boats a few stories ago as they are commanded by Jesus to get into the boat and then cross the sea. The sea, again, being a metaphor for the rule of evil in this world, the age of evil, the chaos that evil brings. And as those disciples are being held aloft, held afloat on those boats in this sea of evil, with the only thing saving them was the floating boat that Jesus put them in, we should feel a certain kinship with them because we too live in a world that is a sea of rejection, just as Jesus is experiencing. The crowds could not be more numerous. They could not be more excited. They could not be more aggressive. Yet they also, at their very core, are rejecting him resolutely. They are curious. They are interested. They are here for the miracles. But we've seen time and again that Jesus' true and genuine followers are small in number. And these small in number disciples must feel something like Jesus feels as he goes to his hometown and is utterly rejected by them. So this is the context of what faces us this morning, the context of rejection and how the kingdom of God in this age is a kingdom that lives in the midst of full outright rejection. So the rejection begins in verse one. He went away from there and came to his hometown. So as he comes to his hometown, Mark never tells us what the hometown is, but we know from Matthew and Luke that the hometown would be Nazareth. Nazareth was known as his hometown. He was called Jesus the Nazarene. He wasn't, of course, born in Nazareth. He was, as we know, born in Bethlehem. And he lived the first few years of his life away from Nazareth. He lived for between one and two years there in Bethlehem after his birth, because as the Magi, the wise men, come to see him, he's between one and two years old. And then after that comes the dream. The angel tells them to flee to Egypt for safety. They flee to Egypt for a time. And then when King Herod dies, another angel comes by way of dream. And Joseph is told to now return because Herod is dead. So they return to Nazareth, the hometown of both Mary and Joseph. And this will be all that Jesus knows as he grows up. He he won't have likely any memory, maybe the earliest memory, but, but most likely no memory at all of living in Egypt and certainly no memory of living in Bethlehem. But all of his memories will be of Nazareth. Nazareth will be where all the people are with whom he grew up, the people that he uh, was was children with, who played together, playmates, uh, adults that he looked up to. All All those people are there in Nazareth where Jesus will be returning to. This is about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So it was a good long day walk from Capernaum, the area of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum where Jesus was before this, a good day, maybe even two days walk from there. And so as he travels to Nazareth, let's just put a little bit of a mind picture in our mind of where Jesus will be returning to as he returns to Nazareth. We're not told why he returns, and we're not specifically told if this was the first time in a long time since he's been there. But as he returns, just to sort of put a picture in our mind of what he's returning to, we should not picture a lush farmland sort of place when we think of Nazareth. Nazareth was really and truly like an armpit of Israel. It was a barren, dry place that was a very rocky, craggy sort of place on the side of hills. It was about 60 acres. And if you 
have an idea of what 60 acres is like. That's, that's not a very big area and less than 500 people live there in Jesus' lifetime. It's a small place. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. And it's a place that is not particularly wealthy at all. It's very sparse in resources. It was not a place of good farmland. And in addition to that, it was a place that was known for having a high Gentile population. Since the days of about six centuries before the birth of Christ, when the Assyrians invaded, since that time, the Gentiles have populated this part of Galilee, particularly the part around Nazareth. So that even Matthew calls this area the Galilee of the Gentiles. So Jesus would have grown up knowing lots of Gentiles. Jesus would have grown up in this sort of area, truly, as in the words of Nathaniel, can anything come, good come from Nazareth? We kind of see where he's coming from. Nazareth was not exactly an attraction type of place. So as he returns here to his hometown of Nazareth, we're told that his disciples followed him, which reminds us that that's why they were called out. If you remember back in chapter 2, as Jesus calls the disciples to himself, he calls them to himself, we're told, so that they may be with him. So the purpose of him, them calling to him was for them to be with him, and they are with him. They are following him, we're told, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, Luke adds for us that that was his custom. As was his custom, he began to teach in the synagogue. So we're told that it was Jesus' custom to attend synagogue on Sabbath and participate in the worships, in the worship services there. This was what he would have done on every Sabbath. But in fact, this is the last time in Mark's gospel that we will be told that Jesus enters the synagogue. So we don't know if he never enters the synagogue again or if he enters other synagogues. But we're not told in the entire remainder of the gospel of another instance in which Jesus is found in the synagogue. But he goes into the synagogue in order to teach. And many who heard him were astonished. And we're by this point very much accustomed to that reaction to Jesus' teaching. We've been told since chapter 1 that when Jesus teaches, the people who hear his teaching are amazed, astonished, astounded. They've never heard teaching like this. Who is this man who is teaching like this? He's teaching with authority, not like our scribes. He is teaching in ways that we've never heard teaching before. So this is not an unusual response to read that the people were astonished at his teaching. However, we should be careful to remind ourselves that astonishment and amazement is not always the same thing with being impressed. We know this to be true. We know that you can be amazed at something in a way that also says that you're impressed with the something that you're amazed at. But you can also be amazed in a way that is an insulting, degrading way. You can be amazed at something that's, that is an, a type of amazement that strips the thing of its honor. And this is the type of amazement that they feel. So let me just give a, a couple of examples to kind of put some flesh on this. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about by, by way of a couple of examples. If I were to say to you, if you were to come to me and you were to say, Guess what? I passed my, my, that big examination I've been studying for. I passed my examination with a hundred percent. And I were to respond and say, what? You? You received a hundred percent? You see how that amazement is not a, a complimentary amazement. That's an insulting amazement because my amazement is that you did such a thing. Or if you were to say, Guess what? I receive the employee of the month honor at work. And I were to say, you? Y really? 
This is the precise kind of amazement that Jesus is receiving in Nazareth and to a larger degree as he's received all along. So as we've been reading about their astonishment and their amazement at his teaching, don't necessarily equate that with an amazement that is impressed. But instead, we're told specifically that their amazement at Jesus's teaching comes from the fact, not not from the substance of his teaching or the truth or the reality or the veracity of his teaching or the, the heart connectedness of his teaching, but we're told that the source of their amazement is the source of the teaching. And many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Do you hear it in their their questions? Their amazement is coming from the fact that this teaching is coming from him, from the carpenter, from the son of Mary, from the one whose brothers we know. We know his sisters. He's the hometown boy. He's the local yokel. And he's here pretending to teach these things to us. Who is this guy? So you see how their amazement and their astonishment is not giving honor to Jesus. It's doing the very opposite. It's taking honor from him. Now, we've already noted that earlier in the story, we noted that Nazareth was something of a, of a hotbed for disbelief in Jesus because the only other contact that we've had from, with people from Nazareth was the instance in chapter 3 when Jesus' family came to Capernaum to take him by force against his will because he was an embarrassment to the family. His teachings, his goings-on, this whole movement that seemed to have started around him was a deep embarrassment to them, and so they come to retrieve him and take him home. So we've already been introduced to the idea that those who are from Nazareth are not the ones who are on the inside, but those who are, they are on the outside. So once again, the same theme. The exact ones that you would think would be on the inside are actually the ones on the outside. And the ones on the outside are the ones that you would have thought would have been on the inside. As Jesus will often say things like, the first will be last and the last will be first. This is no surprise to us that the ones whom we would have expected, meaning Jesus' earthly family, his biological mother mother and his half-biological brothers and sisters, that they would have been the ones in his corner. We find that they are the ones who are the most resolutely opposed to him. So they ask this question, who is this man? Where's this wisdom coming from? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? So they're asking these questions regarding his identity. And I just want to point out real quickly, just the, this is the culmination of a pattern that Mark has followed throughout his gospel up to this point. This ends the pattern. But I just want to point this pattern out to you because I really, I enjoy seeing things like this in God's Word. I enjoy seeing how perfectly it's put together, how it's not just stories thrown together, but instead there's deep purpose, there's thought put behind it, because of course we know that the author of Scripture is God Himself. So He's put this together in ways that when we recognize this, we can appreciate this. And so this culminates a pattern that once I show you this, it'll be, it'll be plain as day, that Mark has the pattern that goes like this. There is an outburst from a demon regarding who Jesus is, And a few verses later, there's a question from a human about who Jesus is. A demon will have some sort of outburst. I know who you are. A few verses later, there'll be a question. Who is this man? So look at the pattern. Chapter 1, verse 24. From the the lips of a demon. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A few verses later, who is this? 
What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits. They obey it. Chapter 1, verse 34. And they would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. So the demons were attempting at least to speak something of the identity of Jesus. A few verses later, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter 3, verse 11. You are the Son of God from the voice of the demon. A few verses later, a paragraph or two later, chapter 4, verse 41. Who, what, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. On the sea, the disciples say, Who is this man? That, that the wind listens to Him. Chapter 5, verse 7, From the lips of the demonized man known as Legion, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Then a few verses later, our present text, Who is this? Isn't this the carpenter's son? So you see there, it's plain as day. This pattern that Mark follows, a demon blurts out something about Jesus' identity. A few verses later, a human asks... Who is this guy? So Mark, I think, is prodding us to ask the question, when will these humans figure out what the demons have known all along? When will these humans comprehend who this man Jesus is? The demons have comprehended this all along. When will the, when will the, humans, and when will the humans see this? So once again, this prominent theme of enlightenment and understanding, understanding of who Jesus is, all that comes in connection with relationship with Jesus. The uh, chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, remember that passage where Jesus says, to you has been given the understanding of the kingdom of heaven, but to those on the outside, it's just in parables. So in relationship and connection to Jesus comes this enlightenment and this understanding that we've been seeing the pattern for all along. Now, just to continue on, they say, how are such mighty works done by his hands? So that tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that the people in Nazareth have plainly heard about what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't come home to Nazareth and everybody say to him, what have you been up to, Jesus? We had not seen you in a couple of years. And he says, well, you know what? Uh, there was this one. T- I turned water to wine this one time. And, and you know, there was a storm on the sea and I, I calmed the storm. And I've, I've, you wouldn't believe how many people I've healed. And they say, what? We can't believe it. Get out of here, Jesus. That's not what happens at all, because they've heard all along. In fact, the whole country has heard all along of what Jesus is doing. So they've heard of His mighty works. But once again, we're given reminder after reminder after reminder that miracles change no one's mind about Jesus. Miracles change nobody's mind. If someone is in unbelief, then a miracle will not change their unbelief to belief. Miracles will only affirm the faith that already exists But if there is no faith, if the soil of the heart is not good, then miracles will harden, not confirm. 